Uh, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. I guess I should say, as always, because uh, invariably, I am. And uh, <laughs> with me today, um, as per usual, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's, and Henry French is the sound engineer, and chortling in the background is Alex J. Pollock. Alex J. Pollock is, uh, I guess, the most interesting man in the world, has already uh, raised his hand, right? I, I see that on television. He's something about Bitcoin. But Alex J. Pollock, in that case, is the second most interesting man in the world, and I will tell you why in just one moment. In the meantime, uh, Evan, what do you think about things? I mean, uh, I think that AI is a thing. Is it not? Oh, it's definitely a thing. Uh, just like uh, like the segue is a thing, too. It can get you around to places. Yeah, well, here it is. You know, it's, it's, it's Valentine's Day as we speak. It's Valentine's Day and uh, Ash Wednesday, which is certainly a mixed message. It's, uh, you know, penitence <laughs> and a little sappy romance the same day. How you okay, how are we going to parse that? Actually, that combination is sort of a, is a good uh, summation of human life. That's Alex J. Pollock. What did I tell you about being the most interesting guy? Okay, so, but in our presence, before we get down to business, is, is uh, Henry French, who was just recently married and now who is uh, today is living his first day, Valentine's Day, as a married man. Now, Alex, um, before we were properly introduced, do you have any advice for young Henry, who is, um, who I, I already told not to mess it up, but what do you, you're, <laughs> you've got nine grandchildren, you're married like 160 years. What do you, what do you suggest <laughs> to Henry French? You're close on the marriage, but you're short on the grandchildren, it's 10. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And I, I always like to pass along the advice of a friend of mine when he got to his 50th wedding anniversary. And I asked him what the secret was, and he replied, you know that thing you were thinking about saying? Don't say it. <laughs> okay. Advice, advice taken. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Alex? I thought that was good advice. Yeah, excellent advice. Um, <laughs> y- y- yes, dear. It's surprisingly good advice. So um, Alex has uh, done some of the following. He, for, uh, you know, he's got um, uh, many, many... Uh, credentials, uh, some of which involved uh, involve life in, in think tanks and foundations. The Mises Institute, I think, is his currently uh, most active association. Uh, he has served uh, as the president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago. That was in 1991-2004. As a visiting scholar of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, once upon a time, he was um, a director of the CME Group. It's an honest living. I'm not sure about the rest of this stuff, Alex. <laughs> You were at one point um, a um, the senior deputy director, was it not, of a U.S. Treasury organization that was in charge of thinking about the future and identifying risk. When I hear senior deputy, I, I think like senior subordinated. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you honorably served. So thank you for your service in that reason. Uh, and Alex is also the uh, the author of uh, I think uh, two books and the co-author of one. I'm sitting here with both. Of, uh, with your co-authored book with uh, Howard Adler, Surprised Again. And uh, the, the book that I know best is Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised by Alex J. Pollock exclusively. And you also wrote one, Alex, on uh, Boom and Bust and the Cycles of um, uh, Human Prosperity. So welcome. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Alex, uh, we don't know where to begin. Such is the variety and depth and interesting nature of your background. But I'm going to begin by asking you about if you have any nominations for the next surprise. It would be, it would be kind of a strange thing if you're dogmatic about it, having written so well and fluently about um, uh, the uh, unpredictable nature of human 
events, especially financially themed human events. But do you have any nominations for what's around the bend? Yes, but let me say first, there's one other uh, qualification of mine I'd like to mention, which is I am a great admirer of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and the work you all do in it and uh, the wonderful essays you write, which I, which I read with a combination of, of enjoyment and intellectual interest. So, uh, well, the- uh, Thank you, Alex. The first page of, uh, of Surprised Again- Yep, I got it right here. Relates how my co-author, Howard Adler, and I were sitting in his uh, capacious office in the Treasury Building in Washington in late 2019, and we were thinking we were having exactly this conversation. What is the next crisis? What's the next bad surprise? And we went through all this list of things, and we, we agreed we couldn't see what the next crisis was, and everything looked okay in uh, November or so of 2019. And uh, after we concluded that, I said to Howard, but when the next crisis comes, we won't see it coming. Page four. <laughs> we won't see it coming. Right. And that's, uh, that's, of course, if we saw it coming, it wouldn't be a surprise. So you mean but to tell me you did not see the pandemic coming? No, but more <laughs> importantly, is the book, because the pandemic was seen in probabilistic terms by many yeah. scientists, that of course, there's going to be you know, some virus that mutates and can cause a pandemic. That, that was a sort of a common uh, scientific thought. Yeah. Uh, but what nobody saw, as we discussed in the book, what nobody saw, including the scientists, including the politicians, including the economists, including the Fed, including uh, all, all of the financial types, was the link right. between a pandemic, the political response to the pandemic, and the financial panic and economic crash, short but extremely sharp, which resulted from the link, pandemic to politics to finance and economics. And then, of course, that, le that led to the huge uh, bailouts right. and money to address all that. And we're still living with that. Are you gonna, in a sense, we're still in the, mm -hmm. we're still in the wake of the panic of 2020. Alex, I've, I've got, uh, I mean, I'm, I am with you all the way on the idea of the, um, uh, the future being a closed book. And I um, often quote uh, this great screen, Hollywood screenwriter, William Goldman, who said, um, nobody knows anything, that's a quote with respect to the uh, studio head's incapacity to forecast uh, box office receipts, et cetera, et cetera. So having confessed all that, now wait, I've got, I've got a prediction. But I, I have a nomination when you... Oh, when oh sorry, ready. sorry. Yeah, I, I'm stepping all over your toes. Oh, go ahead. I don't know. I was just playing too long a, uh, okay. an overture there. Uh, my nomination for the next surprise is that the uh, things will be worse than we think when it comes to the combination of what is going to happen to the banking and financial system with the collapse of commercial real estate combined with terrifically exposed uh, losing interest rate risk positions yeah. on the part of the banks in particular, and of course the Fed itself, which was the leader in turning itself into a gigantic, a titanic 
1980 style savings and loan. The biggest SNL in the world. That's an Alex J. Pollock quote. So, Evan, you haven't used it. The world ever has seen or probably will see. Yeah. See. Anyway, I, but the uh, one characteristic about financial crises, which surprises people, is that they're worse than you think. You know, however bad your worst case is, the actuality turns out to be even worse. That was true, let's say, of the savings and loan collapse of the 1980s. People kept predicting, trying to guess, you know, how bad will this be? And they were always way too low. It was much worse than people thought. It was true, of the, obviously, of the collapse of 2007 to 2009. It was true of the collapse of the oil bubble in the early 1980s. You remember when uh, when uh, then Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke looked at all the numbers and said the subprime crisis is contained just before it all completely fell apart. And uh, recently we've had the Secretary of the Treasury and former Chairman of the Fed, Janet Yellen, say, well, these uh, commercial real estate problems, they're manageable, I think was her word, very similar to contained. Well, we'll see, because my my personal experience with things and my study of them leads me to believe that the surprise will be it'll be much worse than you think. How do you think the commercial real estate crisis is going to play out? So far, we've seen a Japanese bank, Aozora, take large losses from its U.S. commercial real estate exposure, and we've seen a few German banks begin to take losses. Yeah. We've not seen any kind of like, you know, come to Jesus moment with a U.S. banking system. We the, the crisis we had last spring was really centered around banks that took out too much interest rate risk, not too much credit risk. Yes, it was interest rate risk. And it was especially, just let me note in passing, people often talk about treasuries. It was interest rate risk in the form of mortgages. The biggest investment that uh, Silicon Valley Bank had were 30-year mortgages in the form of mortgage-backed securities funded short. I mean, a colossally dumb thing to do. And, and guess whose balance sheet? We've already said it looks exactly the same, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve itself. And the Federal Reserve was the Pied Piper that led the whole banking system uh, into a gigantic system-wide uh, interest rate risk. Not everybody, but, but a lot of banks. Now, uh, the interest rate risk also shows up. I mean, if you believe in lower for longer, let's talk about surprises. Well, we had lower for longer, and then we had what people called higher and higher for longer. Personally, I call it normal for longer. 5% short rates, historically speaking, is a very normal rate, not especially high. 6 or 7% mortgage, that, that's a normal rate. Anyway, uh, but those rates uh, surprise people. And into commercial real estate, uh, every formula, every valuation of the property and every assessment of the quality of the loan goes some kind of thought about the cost of carrying the position. Yeah. And so the interest rate risk actually also turns into credit risk against properties. And Jim, you may... Uh, you may remember this little line of mine from a, a book you were nice enough to say good things about uh, finance and philosophy, and it is this. What is the collateral for a real estate loan? 
And people say the building or the house, but let's say commercial real estate, the building. And I say, not correct. The collateral is the price of the building, price of the house in the event. It's not the physical thing. It's the price, the price being a very abstract thing. And then question two is, how much can a price change? And my answer there is more than you think. And that's why I think the crisis can be more than you think, because the prices can fall. Now, we'll, we'll see. I mean, they can fall more than you think. We've already had astonishing drops, you know, buildings which people thought they lent against with all kinds of margin, in fact. Yeah, well, things, things can also rise uh, farther. They can rise, yes. Yeah, so yes, uh, so, uh, yes uh, crises have a tendency to... Uh, astonish people with their depth and uh, with their malevolence, it seems, you know, could it get worse? My goodness, it got, it got worse. But, <laughs> but notice, notice though, Alex and listeners, that uh, how many of our crises wind up spawning immense booms yes. uh, and that carry so much uh, uh, further than, uh, than a sober-sided value investor might approve of. I'm speaking of that, somebody in this very room. Um, <laughs> So, so consider that uh, you know the uh, the pandemic that uh, spawned all of this lending and borrowing and suppression of rates and uh, all manner of uh, of offenses against sound financial practice. It has been terrifically lucrative for the practitioners of leverage finance. I mean, by by which I mean to say the uh, the people who borrow money with which to invest and speculate, and yeah. to, and also to ordinary four hundred one k holders. I mean, who knows what Bitcoin is today? It was fifty thousand yesterday. Who knows where the um, where Nvidia is today? And on and on. So there. So. So we are both paying the piper of the 2020, 21, et cetera, uh, coronavirus uh, financial uh, uh, riot, uh, but we're also, some of us, reaping extraordinary benefits. My goodness, the, the dollar value of appreciation in, in securities across the board brought about by uh, the priming of all of this Treasury spending and all of the uh, credit creation. My goodness, it is uh, is almost immeasurable. Yes, it's we get surprises that way too. Exactly. Do we ever? Said. Yeah, I have um, a nomination for a surprise. Ready? Yeah, Evan's ready. Henry's ready. And Alex, I suspect yours. Well, here it is. Okay. Um, so if you look on uh, the imputed odds of uh, Federal Reserve rate cuts this year you'll find that the market is still notwithstanding a, a discouraging January CPI report. It happened uh, yesterday, uh, this February 13th. Um, you know, the odds are, they, they, they assign relative odds, and so they're not going to cut in March, but they will cut subsequently, and we're going to look at three or four rate cuts this year. So says everyone. And if you look at the imputed uh, odds assigned on a rate hike, it's zero, 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 for every single Fed meeting this year. But, but, um, Alex, do you recall, if you do, that, that but, uh, Lori Logan, who is now the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, gave us talk in early Jan January 4th. It wasn't very well reported. But in it, Lori Logan said uh, that uh, financial conditions are, are really quite uh, accommodative. That's the euphemism. Drunk and disorderly is how some of we might characterize them. But financial conditions are far from stringent. And in those circumstances, we ought not to rule out, says Lori Logan, another rate hike. Now, that got zero attention, but I'm thinking, Alex, I'm thinking that um, uh, some out-of-the-money options on 
higher short-term interest rates this year. This is, this is a kind of a germinating, <laughs> no doubt really bad thought, but some out of the, distantly out of the money, you know, penny stock, cheap options on the impossible happening. It's a sign 0%. Now, in one of your books, you talk about the proclivity of human beings to, to uh, round down to zero, low Yes, that's a really important idea. That's a great, you expressed it so well. So if something is a 1% chance of happening, and I, I don't think anyone would doubt this, this a 1%, anything happened on going, rates going up? If, yeah, 1% worth. I, I think we all ought to go out and price. Uh, uh, anyway, Evan, what do you think of that? I think it's an interesting speculation. And uh, given that nobody else is doing it, it probably is very cheap and has probably a lot of, what do they call it, convexity, if you're right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it would go along with a uh, comment from... Bank of America Global Research, somebody sent me today, which says, uh, we believe inflation could re-accelerate and markets are underpricing inflation. That's a, that's a thing, Axel. Um, remember, um, you and I may remember, nobody else is going to remember, but um, Paul A. Volcker, who was Deputy Secretary of the Treasury for what, Internet for the Dollar International Affairs? International Affairs, yeah. how about in the 1960s? Uh, in the early 70s, 1971, yeah. Well, yeah, when he, when he went to the famous meeting at Camp David as a junior member. Yeah. Right. He gave a talk uh, and, and, you know, and he, he was on side for the team. You know, he had no choice really uh, but to say such things, although I dare say he didn't dissemble. But he gave, he gave uh, uh, more than one uh, talk in the early 70s about how the inflation problem is now, um, um, it, it's, it's under control and uh, the dollar is going to do fine and so forth. And um, so w- what happened in the 70s was not one great inflation, it was, it was three successive waves of inflation. And here everybody is saying inflation's, inflation is dead and decomposing. Two things. First of all, inflation is never transitory because the purchasing power lost to that inflation is never regained except with a, a, a corresponding deflation, which we don't have anymore. So, that, so there's no such thing as a transitory well, loss of purchasing power. Right, right. It's a line of William McChesney Martin, I right, believe. Right, 1955, said, said Martin's speech. so right. In, under current circumstances, he right. means so. Anyway, I, I got so mad there, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I want to. But you were talking about betting on what seems like a probability of in, inflation and maybe therefore, and therefore maybe short rates rising from here, not falling. Well, that'd be a good surprise. I love 0% probability events. But um, uh, Evan, you were... Yeah, uh, Alex, to, to re-ask the question a little bit differently that Jim started out the conversation with, which is, um, what will be the next surprise? So back in 2019, it wasn't obvious that a um, virus was going to kind of lead to lockdowns across the entire world and the shutdown of the global economy. But in 2019, we did get kind of foreshadowing of some of the problems to come. We had the repo market seize up in September, uh, which kind of, you know, foreshadowed the fact that in March, the treasury market was going to run into problems and the Fed was going to kitchen sink its balance sheet. And we also had the yield curve invert, which is a sometimes reliable indicator of uh, a future recession, which which did For, happen. Formerly unfailing. Now, so, now, <laughs> formerly now, unfailing. Now, now mainly reliable. <laughs> now, now, now mainly just frustrating. <laughs> but when you kind of look around at things that just aren't quite right for some reason or another, what are the things that are kind of maybe not outright worries right now, but nagging concerns that you see piling up that maybe are foreshadowing what the next crisis will be shaped by? Well, my friend Tom Stanton, who wrote a book about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 1991, predicting that they are, that that the fundamental, as a Marxist would say, he's not a noble Marxist, but 
the fundamental contradiction in the nature of a government sponsor, sponsored enterprise meant that they would one day crash. And he was so right. And uh, he uh, has a saying, which is risk migrates to the hands least competent to manage. <laughs> is that why central I, bank balance sheets are so big? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And completely unhedged. Didn't even try to hedge. Uh, look at the forecasts of the Federal Reserve itself. For example, at the end of uh, 2020, the Federal Reserve forecast a an annual inflation of 1.8 percent for 2021, and that's all you need to know. I and mean, they were only off by a factor of over three against the seven percent actual. They had no idea how uh, how big a loss. I'm sure that. Uh, in some intellectual way, they realized that they could have big losses, but they assigned it a 1% probability. And as Jim was saying, it's the nature of people and markets, and markets are people. After all, that's one of the reasons they're unpredictable, uh, to treat that probability as zero. Yeah. You know, Alex, I, let, may I interrupt here? On the topic of prospective uh, uh, potholes, we, we are having a conference, Alex, on March 5th. This is Super Tuesday. I mean, there's also, I gather, some voting on, but the true Super Tuesday event is the Grant's private credit event. Yeah. And uh, we are, we have enlisted the uh, the great movers and shakers of the private credit world on all sides of this issue. People who have made uh, kind of uh, titanic fortunes by implement, seeing the opportunity and implementing it, and others who uh, look on skeptically and say, yes, but... And we've got some uh, people from the public sector who are going to address the question: Is the is are these uh, these great wads of of uh, assets, these great loans, are they, are they suitable investments for public pension funds, for example? We're going to talk. Oh about yeah, that's a good question for sure. The cyclical test to come. These things are untested by a complete cycle. Uh, what's the systemic risk, if indeed any? Is it in fact dangerous to take loans out of the banking system, which is leveraged 10 to 1, let us generously call it, and place it in the hands of uh, business development companies that are leveraged like one and a half times? Is that, is that really an increase of risk, or might it be a redu- net reduction? Anyway, so the conference is on uh, uh, March 5th in New York City, and uh, it's half day only. It's not going to bankrupt anybody, except the, peop- ah, except the people who don't come to it. That's who is going to bankrupt <laughs> Uh, Alec, yeah, Evan's looking on approvingly. Good, good line, right, Evan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So anyway, he got to come to that. You so, found another group that benefited greatly from from extended low interest rates, suppressed by the Fed, among the other. Uh, you know, as you said, a lot of people became rich out of the out of out of those interest rate manipulations. Hey, Alex, um, you were uh, you used to work at the Federal Home Loan Bank System, which is kind of a bank funding uh, mechanism of last resort, but also a bank regulator. Could I ask you, sitting in your shoes today and kind of also taking off your hat from when you actually examine banks, are banks, commercial banks today, investable? The reason I ask is they're losing deposits to money market mutual funds, which is also raising the cost of their deposits. Um, They're actually facing a runoff in earning assets. Commercial and industrial loans are shrinking year over year. The mortgage market is basically shut down, so they're not seeing many new mortgage assets come onto their balance sheet. They're sitting on potentially unrealized losses from commercial real estate, and they're also facing competition from these private credit funds. And they have already unrealized interest rate risk losses of maybe a trillion dollars or something. So are they an investable asset class today? Is this something, I mean, optically, many banks screen extraordinarily cheap. They're trading, you know, at book or a discount. They're trading at kind of single digit or low double digit multiples of earnings. 
But just given all the headwinds facing them and the fact the Fed wants to keep ratcheting up capital standards, are they something, are they a productive use of investors' capital today? All right, let, let me take up that uh, thought in just a minute if I can. And before that, I'm going to say something about home loan banks. But before that, I'm going to finish my story about Stanton's Law because it gets on the topic that Jim was asking about. So I remind you, Stanton's Law is risk migrates to the hands least competent to manage it. Uh, Pollock has an explanation for why Stanton's Law is true. And it is this. The mission of the bond salesman is to find the biggest suckers. <laughs> That's true. And moreover, they do because they're good at being salesmen and they do find the biggest suckers. And the successful finding of the biggest suckers by the bond salesman sets up the bust. So when we're wondering about what is, you know, where are things going to pop out and get us, it's where the suckers have been found by the salesmen of things uh, which which indeed are are highly risky or or who which may have uh, uh, a, a small probability ex ante of a terrible outcome and then the terrible outcome happens. So now one of the places, as Jim was suggesting, you could think for where those suckers might be are indeed the pension funds. So that that I think is worth worth thinking about. All right, now let me come to home loan banks. When I was at the home loan bank, uh, home loan banks were not regulators. They were pure, they were real banks. That's actually why they hired me. The, the home loan banks ceased to be regulators in 1989. Um, and, and they just became lenders. Uh, originally, only lenders to savings and loans, subsequently large lenders to commercial banks, and also to insurance companies which some people say in principle should never be borrowing. But anyway, insurance companies were, were set up as some potential member borrowers of home loan banks in July 1932 when the Congress passed the act. So in my own experience, I wasn't ever a regulator, as you're, you're talking about. Uh, and the home loan banks ceased to play that, um, that highly conflicted role Hmm. of both uh, banker to the savings and loans, regulator of the savings and loans, deposit insurer through the, uh, the FISLIC, Federal Savings and Loans Insurance Corporation of dishonored memory, uh, and their very tight ties uh, to the industry, making it, which made them a cheerleader. It, it was a formula uh, bound, one might say, to collapse. And it did. So after that, the home loan banks are only only banks, banks to uh, other banks of, or other financial institutions of various kinds. And there's now a very interesting uh, battle going on between a lot of people, say the Federal Reserve, although not openly, but but really, and the home loan banks uh, about, well, wait a minute, who's going to really be lender to these banks? All right. So that's about home loan banks. Now, shifting to your real question, which is, what about the banks? It's so hard to know, isn't it, uh, from outside what you really want to know, which is uh, what is the real credit quality of the bank? Indeed, we 
We observe in history that the managers of the banks themselves of their own banks don't know how risky they are uh, until they find themselves uh, caught in the in the uh, in the downdraft. But we know, as I said before, following the Pied Piper of the Federal Reserve, uh, the banking system in very largely put on gigantic uh, gigantic interest rate risk positions. Uh, commercial real estate is is a perennial uh, source of banking crises over and over again. And in our own careers, I speak for Jim and me, and these we've seen this this uh, movie a lot of times. I have a saying which you may remember too from the uh, book, Jim, which is uh, leveraged commercial real estate is the snake in the financial yeah. garden of. Well, you know, um, when you and I were, ju were just trainees, uh, Alex, in 1862, uh, 1863, I guess, was the first National Banking Act, uh, real estate was for, was uh, prohibited as, yes. a, as, an, as an asset class for commercial banks, nationally chartered. For national banks. Yeah, yeah, because national banks were going to be the issuers of currency. Right. And, and, that, and so uh, that was a too risky an asset for them to hold. And not until 1935 was uh, real estate readmitted to the uh, list of eligible assets for... Um, uh, nationally chartered banks to hold. So um, before we uh, before we break up this this uh, fine bull session. By the way, one of Alex's um, <laughs> is in his biography. Um, uh, you know, they, they you have to in certain biographical forms you have to list your interests. They, they they don't want the world to think you're some darn automaton. You know, some guy who just comes to work and never goes home. So um, Alex lists his hobbies, including you know extreme sports and. Uh, Conducting the um, Berlin uh, Philharmonic and you know, he's wild, uh, accomplished. Anyway, the last thing in his biography is, is to uh, in the pursuit of clarity. All right, so um, uh, that you don't see that in every bio biography. And it, apropos of pursuing clarity, Alex, I would like you to tell the listeners about this fine idea that you are proposing about um, having well-endowed colleges. Uh, share the burden of student loan defaults. Are you suggesting that Harvard Endowment <laughs> gets mobilized to help out the taxpayers? Uh, yes. Bail? What? Okay. Well, Alex, by the way, is an alumnus of Williams College, the University of Chicago, in Princeton. So he's he's talking really against his own resume here. But let's hear the idea. Come on. The idea, well, for, let me back up. First of all, it seems to me essential if you are going to have any kind of reasonable behavior in uh, student loans, that the college share the colleges. This is all college, not only the Harvard and right. Yale. Okay. Share in losses. I mean, the colleges played in student loans. The colleges play the role of a subprime mortgage broker. They're making subprime loans. They get all the money. They make all the profit up front, and all the risk goes to somebody else, and they've got zero risk. So it follows as the night, the day that the loans will not behave well, and indeed, they're a, a vast uh, disaster. And of course, it's hugely amusing to look back uh, at how the profits from nationalizing student loans were going to finance Obamacare. Uh, <laughs> and instead of the profits, we have hundreds of billions of dollars of losses. All right, so there's a fundamental uh, in incentive and therefore behavioral mismatch the, in my view, the uh, colleges should be definitely uh, on the hook. If there, if the if the uh, if the students who got who got student loans went to that college end up being deadbeats, 
and creating losses, the college should all, always have to pay some share of those losses. Uh, Alex, I, I love your proposal, but there's only one flaw I see with it. In your proposal, you have a sliding scale based off of the size of a university's endowment. And there are some for-profit colleges which actually generate outsized student loan losses, and they tend to have uh, endowments of about zero. <laughs> I, I think if you get rid of the, the sliding scale, I think it's a perfect proposal. There's no, the scale never goes to zero. There's always some, I, I, I do not disagree that we can make improvements in the details here. But let me stick to the general. But everybody pays some share, and uh, and some people pay a lot more. So if you're Harvard, for example, you should pay a hundred percent of the of the losses of your students. I'm thinking that I hear from this man from Chicago and from the great collectivist state of Illinois. I think I'm hearing. <laughs> a very, very strong endorsement for a highly progressive system of taxation, which, of course, is just the thing <laughs> in, the land, in the land of Lincoln. <laughs> and this, this from, from the Mises Institute, I am shocked. <laughs> no, wait, no. This is not taxation. All this right. is paying losses that you've created. <laughs> now, in addition to that, we had my co-author, Arthur Herman, by the way, who's written, I don't know if you've ever had him on, Jim. Arthur has written a number of really interesting books. Anyway... We then went on to say, well, that'll be good, but by definition, unless if everybody doesn't have to reimburse 100%, uh, then there'll still be a loss to the taxpayers. So why don't we help the taxpayers out here by letting the uh, the those with giant endowments who are tax-exempt organizations actually kick in to help their fellow colleges pay the losses on student loans? Well, we had a really good time. Writing that. Yeah, well, it shows it. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it the, the copy itself fairly giggles with delight. <laughs> so I want to think. The wanna... idea is no forcing risk on other people if you don't have skin in the game. No, it's fundamental as there can be. Show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcomes. Said, uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you to the, uh, the former principal deputy director of the Office of Financial Research in the U.S. Treasury Department. Alex, that is one item in your resume that I want to see scrubbed the next time. I don't like <laughs> it. It is utterly out of care. So see what you can do about that. But the, the man who has written some, um, some fine books, the man who was uh, leading the Great Books Foundation, he just knows about great books and he's written some fine books himself. So from the man who did all that, who uh, helped to direct the, uh, uh, the CME, who led the Federal Home Loan Bank of China, all of this, Alex J. Pollock, thank you for being with us. And I, sh I should also add, by the way, a retrospective introduction that Alex is one of the most persistent and, and engaging author of letters to the editor. They often turn up in the FT and sometimes the Wall Street Journal. So for all of that, Alex, for all that long-winded stuff I just rattle off, thank you. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Jim. And all is really great, as always, to be with you. Yeah, it was merely a delight. Um, Evan, thank you. Thank you. Well... What else do you want to say, Evan? Um, I can share my favorite uh, Chicago anecdote. Yeah, let's hear it. So I, I was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, and um, I had a Latin American professor, and he would have students come up, and this is before Vicente Fox won president in, um, in Mexico and kind of broke the PRI's unbroken uh, record of being the only party elected to the top <laughs> office. He said students would come up to him in Chicago and say, how can Mexico have one party and be a democracy? <laughs> and he would always look at the students and say, how can you be in Chicago and ask me that question? <laughs> well, very fine. Okay. Very 
Happy days. Thank you very much. It was really great to be with you. Well, thank you, listeners. This is uh, Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. And I'll see you all on uh, March 5th at the Cure Building in New York City for our special private credit event. All right, till then, so long. (laughs) 